Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello. Good evening, Death, Sex, and Money. I just finished listening to the program with Joanne where she was talking about aging. My daughter sent me a podcast about getting older. And she kept saying, "Have you? did you listen? Did you listen? And so I listened tonight. And I, I see why she sent it to me. So you want to know about aging. Okay, I'll tell you, it's not all that fun. It's a great time of life. I don't usually feel old at all. But as I belly flop into 70. I much prefer to say, oh, I'm older. I just turned 65. I can't believe it. I don't feel like it. I feel like I'm about 10. Unless my arthritis kicks up and then I feel about 100. It's almost as if I can't experience pleasure anymore, which is, again, just wild to me. I can't even wrap my head around it. It is what it is, but... I sure as hell wouldn't want to be in my 20s. That's something I know. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Joanne Allen. I mean, do you remember, like, last year when they kept telling us 65 is the new 45? At the start of 2020, a listener we're calling Laura moved to a new city by herself. She's 67, like me, and she had big hopes for the next chapter of her life. But just a week after moving, she had a big health scare. And then the pandemic hit. I mean, that picture that's out there was out there until COVID was that, you know, you're going to reinvent yourself in these certain ways and that this is going to be the most fulfilling time. And I don't think it really is for everybody. Tell me, how is this year different from what you imagined it would be? It never occurred to me that I wasn't invincible or vulnerable because I had taken really good care of myself. So I was just programmed to think that I was going to start another chapter of my life. I was going to phase into retirement. I was going to volunteer. I was going to go to museums. I was looking forward to the freest, most independent, most fulfilling time of my life. And does that make you feel what? That what you had envisioned was not coming true. You know, when, after you're 65, if you look at it realistically, how many really good agile years do you actually have? And this is going to take like two years out of our lives. So I feel really disappointed, but I feel so isolated Because in the beginning of the pandemic, I was just looking at all these people sitting with their families watching Tiger King and they were baking bread. And I was like sitting there by myself. So I was pretty much on my own. Sometimes it can feel like aging is something you're doing all alone, even though people are doing it all around you. I'm Anna Sale, and I am aging, but I'm not yet over 60. My public radio colleague, Joanne Allen, is, and I am so glad she is hosting this episode for us. Hi, Joanne. Hey, Anna. So we first talked back in the fall when I interviewed you about what it's been like for you to be getting older. And we asked people at the time to tell us how they were feeling their age in this moment. And Joanne, people responded to you. 
I think we're tapping into a vein that's always been there. People in my age group, all you have to do is poke them, <laughs> ask a few questions, and they will answer them. I'd love to answer some questions about being older. I love that we're doing this. It's awesome. The idea that ageism is the last taboo got my attention quickly. It's hard to talk about all of this. I don't think I ever discussed this time of life with my own parents. I was having a sense of being an older person and that this was new territory. This was a new experience, the way being adolescent or being pregnant or giving birth was new. And I wanted to talk about it. We're right here. All you have to do is ask. We're right here. Ask us. In your emails and voice memos, you told us about what it feels like to be older right now. And yes, some of what we heard was about COVID, but a lot of it wasn't. You told us about changes in your bodies, your finances, your relationships with other people, and with yourselves. You know, sometimes being single, it's, uh, you come home and there you are, you know, and there's not like a roommate or, or a partner or anybody to welcome you and to help you sort out your day. And so you're doing that on your own. This is Stanley. He's 62 and lives by himself in a studio apartment in Chicago. My primary identifiers are uh, single, Christian, a male. Over the past few years, Stanley's had periods of feeling really alone. So it was surprising to him that the pandemic has actually helped him to build some new relationships. He's landed in a quarantine pod with eight other people whom he met through his church. The person who's closest in age to me is 30 years younger than I am. And so, uh, you know, kind of initially, uh, I was. I was like, who, why do you want to hang out with somebody who's your parents' age, you know? And uh, always kind of feeling a little like, am I sure I belong in this group? And, uh, and I was assured that I was not like their parents. And so uh, they welcomed me. I mean, it was not a thing for them. It was more of a thing for me. Do you guys ever talk about age? We do. We've talked about age some. but. I've not really thought of myself as aging until maybe, you know, five years ago, two years ago. And sometimes I get lost in conversations because I can't hear very well. Uh, and somebody has their face turned away from me. Or uh, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we're out or, you know, we're at somebody's house and, and uh, I just suddenly run out of steam. And so I just... Uh, you know, kind of kick back on the sofa and, you know, close my eyes until it's time to go home. That's never been a, a problem for them, and it's not really been a problem for me. Sometimes I'm very proud when I realize that I am the oldest person in this little gathering, and I mm -hmm. kind of revel in my experience. That's me. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like, I'm the oldest person here, I'm experienced, and boy, that is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, have, that, uh, I have that feeling on a regular basis. Uh, you know, last night, five of us met 
and uh, uh, had a drink. And yeah, I, I totally had that thought. I was like, I can't believe that I'm here. You know, that, that here we are in the middle of the pandemic and, uh, and I have people who want to hang out with me and, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm the old guy, but, uh, I'm not relegated to a place that I don't want to be in. When you are home and you maybe haven't seen members of the pod in a while and you're having to just be alone and be with yourself during this pandemic, does loneliness and emptiness still set in? And if so, what do you do about it? Yes, uh, it still sets in. I uh, kind of have left things so in the way of uh, house cleaning. And uh, I'm, in a, I'm a great lover of the thrift store and other people's junk. You know, my biggest uh, concern or fear around, uh, you know, dying, I guess, is that it will happen and everybody will come and you know, clean out my house and go, oh, my God, you know, this guy's living in a hoarder house. And uh, Are you serious? <laughs> That's your biggest fear? About dying? It is. Why? It is. Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes, I mean, I tend to think that uh, the physical version of my life is, uh, is a manifestation of the inward life that I have. And so uh, if I were to die and everyone would come and see into me a little bit more. See that uh, I was a bigger mess than than uh, than what I thought I was presenting. So maybe that uh, maybe that's just a uh, an unwarranted fear, thinking that uh, uh, somebody will think, you know, oh yeah, his his life's a little messy. One of the things I I think I say about myself is that. I'm very good in a crisis because I don't panic. Back in February, a listener named Sandra, who's 73, came home to the Bronx from a vacation. She had two missed calls on her answering machine from friends of her younger sister. They couldn't reach her. Long story short, it turned out she had passed away in her apartment and no one knew for four days. So I had to step in and deal with that. Mm. Um, I had to have the police come and break in because I didn't have keys to her apartment and they discovered her. So you actually did not have to see her body? No, I did. And, and, and apparently it was a good thing I did not have to see it because four days in a closed in apartment, um, it was not pretty. And the medical examiner himself said, he gave me two hazmat suits. He says, sooner or later, I guess you'll have to go in after, you know, you take care of her remains. He said, but it's, it's really a mess. So you have to, you should wear these hazmat suits before you go in and you shouldn't go in alone. 2020 has been a lot for Sandra. In April, she contracted COVID. Luckily, her case was mild. 
Then in June, as protests against racism and police brutality spread across the country, Sandra watched them unfold on the streets outside her apartment. As a Black person, I have been seriously aware of the institutionalized inequities in this country. And I felt frightened because I, it, it was almost physical, like, I'm in danger. My life is in danger in my own country. And I, I really, I was caught between being really angry about that and being really scared. Um, I began to feel very vulnerable and my thinking even went a little bit off the rails where I'm saying, oh my goodness, I can't go out there and fight. (laughs) You know, I would be creamed in in a minute. Um, And so I I really was sort of overreacting to to an extent um, about what could happen, what will happen. Have you ever been abused by the police? Have you ever been stopped? I have four times wrongly, but still. Yes, it was. I would say it was kind of mild. Um, my husband and uh, at the time and I were lined up on Central Park West for the Thanksgiving Day Parade, and this tiny this officer he was white and he was he wasn't even as tall as I was, and he's going along the stanions because people lean on them, saying, you know, back up, back up. And when he got to me and my husband, he pushed us literally, put his baton in our chest and pushed us back in order to make the point that we needed to go to, to move back. He didn't do it to anybody else. Mm. And there wasn't a thing we could do about it. Right. How many times have you been married? Once. I was married for 20 years, almost 20 years, no children. Uh, it was just the two of us. But there were issues. Tell me about that. Uh, I went into the marriage feeling, because I still had so little experience, feeling I was supposed to take care of him. I was the family social secretary and and travel agent. And I was supposed to make sure that, you know, that I had to monitor his level of contentment. What can I do to please him? It sounds like you were really the caregiver. You were making sure that everything was okay for him. With him. What about the other way around? Well, that's interesting. Um, he was very generous in, in giving, you know, purchasing little, he, he bought me flowers weekly. I don't, uh, during an, almost the entire relationship marriage, he always bought me flowers, which was amazing. Um, you know, he was very helpful around the house. Sandra, I'm going to stop you right there. I want you to tell me emotional relationship, intimate things. I don't want to so much hear about he took you to dinner. I don't want to hear all of the external stuff. Tell me, tell me about your inner life with him and his inner life with you. Um, Okay, I I think his inner life was me with me was this, because he said so. He said, "You're the best thing that ever happened to me, the best thing." But what I came to realize was that the he he was not really capable of being the same degree of empathy, showing empathy that I was to him. And I'll give you a very concrete example, and it stunned me when it happened. Um, I think three or four years into our marriage, I had to have surgery 
and it was major surgery. And so I came home after five or six days and I realized he was actually doing a little bit more in the house for me and for himself than he was used to because I would do everything. So I got a friend of mine. I said, I want you to do me a favor. I want to get a couple of little treats for my husband to show him how much I appreciate, you know, his effort in, you know, he's taking on the extra work. He's, you know, has to make his own dinner, whatever the case may be. He was doing more for himself and for me than he was used to doing. So my friend purchased these things and, you know, it was a book and it was some candy, you know, things like that. I think a bottle of wine and I gift wrapped everything. And towards the second week of my home recovery, my husband comes home from work and I said, I have some surprises for you. And so he's, we sat down in the living room and I, I said, I know you've been working a little bit extra stuff that you're not used to, but I want to show my appreciation. This is my thank you to you. And he opened everything silently and he looked at me and he said, this is all very nice, but it's not enough. And I, I did not know what to say. I could not. What did he mean? It's not enough. I did not know how to respond. I began to realize slowly the very serious limitations of his emotional engagement. What was the nail in the coffin? I think I got to the point where I realized that I wanted to stop being, quote, unquote, his mother. When your divorce happened, how old were you? And how old were you when you started dating again? Okay, I think I was probably about 56 when I divorced. So I was almost 58 um, when I started dating again, which, you know, middle age, you know. Um, and, and he, the, the guy that I, the second one I got involved with, the relationship did evolve into a physical relationship. And I have to say, he was an amazing lover. He was amazing. Oh, good for you. <laughs> That's great. He said to me after two days, he says, I'm going to marry you. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> so... so um, are you dating now? No, I have not had a date, quote unquote, per se, in probably a good 10 years. I'm 73. I'm not looking for anything permanent because I think of my life the way I live it now as being extraordinarily good. Do you miss intimacy? Well, um, um, at this point in my life, I do. And I miss the intimacy with a partner. I do miss that. And I'll, I'll tell you something. Um, what We had a legal separation. And during the legal separation, I sat myself down and I said, okay, you are 56 years old. 
and you are now living alone again for the first time in 20 years, what does the future look like for you? How do you feel about the prospect that you could live the rest of your life alone? You know, and I, I still at this point in this conversation with you right now feel I'm fine. I, I can handle it. And maybe a lot of that also comes from having observed my mother as she was aging because my parents divorced after 31 years of marriage. They divorced. But she lived from the time that they divorced until her death alone. Alone. And I remember asking her once as an adult, do you think you want to get married again? And she looked at me as if I had lost my mind. She said, why would I do that? But you know, we did hear from a lot of you about the benefits of being partnered as you age. A listener named Brian is 65 and lives in New Jersey. And earlier this year, his wife Gail was sidelined by rotator cuff surgery. She really couldn't do anything for for two months. Gail and Brian are college sweethearts. They've been married nearly 40 years. And after raising three daughters, they're now empty nesters. But even after all that time, Gail's surgery gave Brian a chance to step into a new role in their relationship. One of the things I discovered um, is that it's really hard to put uh, earrings through somebody else's earlobes. Um, I had to really take over. And I guess the timing was good because I had retired uh, earlier this year. And yeah, I, it was it was actually kind of nice Um being present for somebody because she's she's always taking care of us, you know. How has your physical intimacy changed as you've gotten older? Or has it? Well, when you're uh, not intimate to, and well, let, let me let me see if I can figure out how to phrase this. If you're beyond the stage where you can actually make babies, um, something changes. I think then you're being intimate just to be intimate. And um, in its own way, it's actually, uh, it's, it's deeper, I think. It's, it's, it's nicer in a way. So I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, uh, but. I gotcha. So. What do you expect your physical intimacy will be like as you continue to age? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about it. Um, I, I don't know what will happen. I, I don't really think about it that much. It's not as important as it used to be, you know, you know, the frequency. So, um, and also it's wintertime where I am and, um, it's nice just to sleep next to each other, you know, in, in our drafty old house um, when the heat's turned down. Just, you know, back to back. It's very nice. Let me ask you, is your wife around? Might she be willing to talk to us? Oh, I didn't really. She I can might. go ask her. She's, she's downstairs. You want me to go ask her? I do. Yeah, no, I... I uh, I don't think she'll come. 
but we'll find out. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. Okay. Coming up. She'll be here in a second. Wow. Cool. I did not expect this, uh, this command performance. Hey, it's Anna. We did hear from a lot of you as we were making this. And obviously, there's a lot more to cover about aging than we can get to in one episode. So I'm excited to let you know that Joanne and I are going to be co-hosting a national call-in radio special about life after 60 on public radio stations across the country. That's next Wednesday, January 13th from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Please tune in and call in. Check with your local station to see if it's running where you live, or you can stream the whole thing on the Death, Sex, and Money Facebook page. We've also put together a playlist of some of our past episodes with people over 60, including poet Nikki Giovanni, actor Ellen Burstyn, and musical legend Bill Withers. You can find that at deathsexmoney.org slash aging. And for the rest of this month, we're going to be releasing new interviews with a few older guests, including Marlo Thomas, who's having her own feelings about being in her 80s. You know, when everybody said, well, you know, we're the elderly, you can't go, you know, good COVID. I said, oh, well, I got it. We're the elderly, you know. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's all this month on Death, Sex, and Money. When it comes to talking about getting older, we are just getting started. So hit subscribe on your podcast player, and you can text the word AGING to the number 70101. And we'll send you reminders about our upcoming shows as we continue this conversation. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Gail. Hi. Hi, I'm Joanne. Hi, Joanne. So I'm really glad that you joined us. I've been talking with Brian a little bit about your relationship together and how it has uh, evolved and changed since you guys got older. So the question I want to ask is, has your relationship changed over the years, especially from when your kids left to now? Well, yes, because uh, for one thing, um, Brian's home all the time now because he's retired. And that's only been for the last year. And, And prior to that, he was traveling a lot for his job. So I was sort of doing my own thing, you know, kind of getting used to being here by myself and watching what I wanted to watch on TV or eating when and what I'd like to, you know, eat for dinner kind of thing. And I also had my mother, my mother lived, used to live nearby. My mother's passed away, but I, I spent a lot of time with my mother. So that's made us a little more, I don't know, a little a closer when you, when you, experience things like that, the death of your parents or uh, relatives, you kind of, it can make you closer. That shared experience can make you feel closer. And now, of course, he's home, physically home all the time. I think, (laughs) I think we've had to become very, a lot more easygoing, a lot more tolerant. So yeah, I think we, we definitely, our relationship has definitely changed. I think it's working fine. 
right? Mm -hmm. We're not getting in each other's way. So you guys have been together for a while. What surprises you about the other? Anything? <laughs> but what I what what's surprising about Brian is how smitten he is with our granddaughter. So why is that surprising? Yeah. I don't know. Just <laughs> yeah. Why is that surprising? I guess because he was he was always a great father. I, I guess I guess because we only have one granddaughter. So we're new at this. We're new at this. And it's cool to have a granddaughter now that I have three daughters, you know. Yeah. Tell me more about her. Tell me how she makes you feel. <clears throat> well, when she pulled in the driveway today with her parents, you know, in the back seat there and you know, when they're young, they have to face the back and uh, I opened the door and there she was. It was great. It was great to see her. And she's very smiley and easily entertained. It doesn't matter how bad your voice is. Um, she'll listen to you sing and be happy to hear you. So how old is she? Uh, she was born in the middle of the pandemic uh, and she's um, going to be turning eight months in a couple of weeks. So, mm. you guys seem neat. Like you got a good thing going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> Let's see. Maybe like ninety percent of the time. <laughs> yeah, we're. They're <laughs> recording, honey. I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> My husband's been dead for 13 years. I call it weirdohood, not widowhood. Weirdohood, because it is so freaking weird. It's a very weird way to be. My name's Rowan Weimark. I'm 66 and I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which sounds more exciting than it actually is. My household is two cats, a goldfish, and the dog. I would have lost my mind without him, really would have. The goldfish hasn't been a lot of use, but the cats have been cool. Cats have been very helpful. In the first year, it's like another planet. If I hear you grieve in your own way, uh, it takes time. Um, with my husband in particular, people saying, oh, he died doing what he loved because he fell while he was hiking. And uh, it was an idiotic way to die. It was a really stupid way to die. And um, hearing he died doing what he loved just bugged the crap out of me. Things like that, about the platitudes that people say, you know, oh, you'll get over it. There's time. Or that whole vibe you get after six months is, haven't you gone over it yet? <laughs> and I'd say it takes a good three years to get completely back to normal. And after 13, it was usually on the anniversary of my husband's death, I would be really weird and I would do strange rituals. And this year I actually forgot, which is a whole interesting transition.
A listener named Susan has been experiencing weirdohood since her husband died five and a half years ago. They raised two kids together and worked side by side from home, but there were differences between them. And it's only since being on her own that Susan started to explore the parts of herself that didn't feel as accessible in her marriage. My husband was a all the walls are white kind of guy. And there was this breakthrough when I realized I could paint my kitchen yellow. I could paint my living room a beautiful light green. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have insisted on it. I wouldn't have even thought about it when I was making those decisions alongside a husband. How do you feel being so happy about this uh, new way of living? (laughs) In other words, do I feel guilty? (laughs) A little bit? No, I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel guilty. No. Um, I feel like how lucky I am to be thriving in this part of my life. Susan is still working full-time at 70, remotely. But recently, she's been thinking about retiring. The only thing is, she's not sure she can afford to do that yet. So, she's been talking to a financial advisor. That's one of the things that I um, wanted some advice on, and the advice is something that I've heard heard before from my advisor, which is you need to figure out how much you spend. And I don't actually know. (laughs) So once again, I said to him, you sent me this form before, haven't you? Um, I have a a budget, you know, a kind of monthly assessment of my um, expenses that he just sent me. So I, I really need to face the fact that I I need to face my budget. And I've asked myself, why do I have such a hard time? I have a real resistance to it. And I've asked myself, what is going on here? And I think it's because between my husband and me, the relationship was that it it surfaced between the two of us that what had happened just sort of organically is that I was the spender, he was the saver, and we somehow worked it out. But it made me always feel guilty that I was spending more than I had and I was spending more than I was supposed to. Um, And I think that I am carrying that guilt even now, and it makes me want to keep it a secret how much I spend every month. Wow. Yeah, wow. That's pretty intense, Susan. Just saying it out loud makes me think, oh my God, what a what a terrible state of mind that is. And I am so I'm determined to break through that and figure out my monthly budget in the next week or so. So you turned 70 recently, huh? There you go. And, um, you know, I I can't say that it was like, you know, turn the page of the calendar, now everything is different, but it seems to me that 
I'm more aware now of um, the end in sight in a way, you know, more aware that there's only a finite amount of time left in my lifetime. Um, and, um, oh gosh, I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> oh, why? Um, why? Uh, I'll tell you why. Um, so my daughter, um, lives in New Zealand and now with, um, the pandemic, we, you know, we talk at least once a week, um, but we don't know when we're going to see each other again. And even before the pandemic, she said to me at one point, I just started thinking about how many times we get to be together again. And I think that's the kind of thing that you start thinking about at, at age 70 is, you know, how much time is there left? How many times do I get to do this? If, if I'm going to do something, I better do it now. So that's very much in my mind. Um, it so. is it is a hard thing to think about um, possibly passing before you get to see important people in your life, especially yeah. now during the pandemic. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, we she's even said to me, I'm not sure I would have made this decision to stay here forever if I'd known. <laughs> so I've had I've actually had to sort of talk talk to myself about how my love for her, my relationship with her doesn't mean that I have to be physically next to her, you know, that there's so much between us that we can um, enjoy and benefit from um, without being physically in the same place, but it's still sad and hard because <laughs> I got a lot of things I still want to do. <laughs> um, I was also thinking about the fact my grandparents, all, all of my grandparents died at about age 70. Then my, both of my parents died at about age, well, at age 84. I mean, that's another thing that I do at this age and probably didn't used to do before 70 or at least the mid-60s, which is cast my eyes forward in time and think, okay, so if I live until I'm 87, let's say, I've got 17 years left. Now, I take 17 years away. What is that? 53. Oh, my God. From 53 to 70? That wasn't that long. Is that all I have? I do these math things in my head, which are pretty useless, but I still do them. <laughs> I was going to say, stop that, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Good Why? advice. Good advice. Death is not something we, that we talk about. Um, and it's unfortunate because you're alive until you're dead. When she was in her 50s, Fran Shalen started a training program to become a hospice chaplain. Now, at 63, she lives in Los Angeles with her partner and her mom near her two grown kids and works to ease the process of dying for her clients and their families. But she says a lot of people don't get what it is that she does. You know, I'll walk into a room and say, I'm the chaplain, I'm not here to pray. You know, unless you want me to, because people have this thing about, you know, chaplain shows up, uh-oh, there must be a Bible somewhere. You know, whereas I say to them, 
you know, I'm here to listen to stories and I'm the only person who isn't going to ask you if you peed. Since you started this work, has anyone close to you died? I had a friend die and 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 this person was on hospice so you know I was running around making sure everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing um and it's it's different because it's yours you know what I mean mm -hmm. it's like it's not the same I can be in relationship with my grief about a beloved who has died. And yes, I knew what was going to happen. And, and that was hard to know that, but it was also something that made it so that I was not afraid. But I'll tell you this, I did, and I'll probably start to cry as I do. Um, okay, we'll get there. I do have an 88-year-old mom, and she's not in the best of health. And I will grieve that like crazy. But I will also be able to sit next to her. So she's mine. That's the difference. Hmm. Sorry. Oh, please don't apologize. <laughs> and if it ever gets to a point where people dying becomes commonplace, I'm not doing this work anymore. But it's certainly... It's certainly not. It is not. And it does affect how I live. In what way? Well, I'm a little carefuler than I used to be about where I put my feet. Because falling is a fear. I am careful about my bones. And I am careful about my posture. <laughs> I've been watching myself, uh, you know, constantly thinking about, okay, where are your shoulders? Um, yeah, I've, I have balance issues, so I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I can be starting in one direction, and and then I feel myself kind of, you know, moving slowly in another, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not going in that direction. Well, I'm losing my balance. And you know what? Do something about it. Because, so I had had this period of time where in, in a period of six months, I fell four times. Not terrible falls, but just like you said, one part of your body's going in one way and the other part of your body's going another way. And so I went to see a balance person. Um, we did it. She did a whole big workup with me. And she said, it's not your balance. You're just, you're, you're not connected to your head. Your body's not connected to your head. When you're walking, you got to be thinking about walking. Like, damn, I can't do four things at once. No. Mm. Um, and 
And she taught me some ways to run out of a fall if I am falling. But, you know, my son was a dancer and a, and a skateboard person. And they fall all the time. They know how to fall. They should be teaching us how to fall from the time we are very young. Because my son knows how to fall because it's a body memory. And he and I were walking. We take a lot of hikes together. And I was telling him about, you know, the sphere of falling. Well, he kept falling on purpose. He kept falling. Look, mom, fall like this. Boom. Mm. And he'd go and he'd roll. And we are so afraid of falling that the way we fall is dangerous. And um, so, yeah, get that balance checked. Okay. Um, Okay, Fran, I will. How do you talk to your kids about aging? Um, They're in their 20s. And my son is in, uh, they're both in, in, you know, good health. He, I can see that when I talk to him about my aging and He's upset because his grandmother isn't doing well. And it, you know, he keeps saying, you know, she should be doing this. She should be doing that. Like, honey, this is what aging does. And it's going to do it to me at some point. And he was horrified, you know, no, it's (laughs) so you got to drop this stuff in little drops on your kids. You know, Um, I tell them the things I'm doing to take care of myself. You know, uh, my grandmother lived with us when I was growing up. My mom lives with us. Um, You know, part of it is showing, look, this is how we do it in this family. Now, is he going to kick me to the curb? I'm not sure. Um, But, but. You're not sure. What do you mean you're not sure? (laughs) Of course he's going to kick you to the curb. (laughs) So I've got all my funeral stuff and I say to him, you know, honey, everything is here, blah, blah, blah. The only thing that you need to do is figure out what you're going to put on that plaque. That's the only thing left that needs to be done. But we do. We talk in drips. We, we you know, you got you got to you got to do this stuff slowly with them. Um, you know, I heard someone say once you are you think you are drawing on water until you realize you've been carving stone. And I hope. That's what I've been doing. That's a listener named Fran in Los Angeles. Joanne, thank you so much for having these conversations with our listeners. Where can people hear more of you? Thank you, Anna. I host my own podcast called Been There, Done That. It's a show that tells the real-life stories of the baby boom generation. And we have a lot of stories to tell. So check it out wherever you listen or at beentheredonethatpodcast.com. And if you want to tell us your own story about getting older, we always want to hear it. Send us an email or record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Or you can call and leave us a message. The phone number is 917-740-6549. 
Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Annabelle Bacon produced this episode. The rest of the Death, Sex, and Money team includes Katie Bishop, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Boteen, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Michelle Shu, Theodora Kuslan, Mike Berry, Jennifer Houlihan Roussel, Risa Robinson, Maria Silva, Kim Nowacki, Sahar Baharlu, Andrea Latimer, and Amy Pearl. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And thank you to Sharon Preda in Toronto, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Sharon and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Do you have any questions for me about age? Are you looking forward at all to aging or getting into your 60s and 70s? You know what I really am? I, um... I look at my parents and they do have a sense of sort of a wonderful kind of like letting go of the things mm. that they weren't in control of and mm-hmm. it didn't come to pass and a real sense of um, gratitude of what got them to where they are. Yeah, there's a peace that comes with that, you know? Yeah. I am really happy to hear that you're looking forward to aging. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. I'm glad to hear a 40-year-old say, yeah, when I get 60 and 70, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And by the time you hit your 60s and 70s, hey, it's just going to be a thing. I'm Anna Sale. And I'm Joanne Allen. And this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.